Be assured that from the first day we heard of you, we haven't stopped praying for you, asking God to give you wise minds and spirits attuned to his will and so acquire a thorough understanding of the ways in which God works. We pray that you live well for the Master, making him proud of you as you work hard in his orchard. As you learn more and more how God works, you will learn how to do your work. We pray that you will have the strength to stick it out over the long haul, not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength God gives. It is strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy, thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. All right, how you doing? Good, oh, this is better. Uh, I'm really excited uh, to introduce a brand new BFF of mine. Um, she's been gracious in letting me call her that. Uh, we've had a really awesome weekend uh, of worship and word, and uh, we've brought Nicole Reyes all the way from New York. She's climbed the snowdrifts and the mountains of the white gross stuff uh, to be with us here. And so uh, I think you guys are in for a real treat. She is an anointed, powerful speaker. And so I'd love for you to give a huge thunderous, don't let me down. Thunderous, welcome to Nicole Reyes. Hi, it is so good to be with you all. I gotta say, um, you really, you do snow. You really do snow. Like I thought I knew snow in New York and then I came here and was like, oh, this is snow. This is what it's about. Um, and I've just had such a great time at Uprising Conference and want to say thank you to your pastors. Want to say thank you to your team and to every volunteer, every person serving to make that possible because that stuff just doesn't happen, right? It's a team effort. And I love that uh, you are part of a church and uh, with pastors who believe in the feminine heart of the body of Christ and want to empower women to fulfill their God-given purpose and destiny. That's not true of every place. And so I think we should give honor where honor is due. So I just want to thank the team. I want to thank your pastor, Mark, uh, Jamie, and Kat, and Natalie, and the whole team this weekend who made this possible. Lives were forever marked and changed by the presence of God because people were willing to do their part, to sow seed, to serve, to roll up their sleeves, and to dream big. And because of that, we were we're all on the receiving end of some pretty great stuff this weekend. So can you just give it up for your pastors and for the team here that made that possible? That's amazing. It really is an honor to be here, and I'm so glad to be with you tonight and uh, to be uh, with you uh, again tomorrow morning. It's, it's just going to be a great time, and I'm actually really excited about the message tonight that I felt led to bring because I feel like it's a very timely conversation to be had. I believe that this message uh, really will deeply impact every single one of us because I, I don't know about you, but it seems like the last few months we have been inundated with news reports of injustice and corruption and racism and inequality and, and political divide, right? And that's just in our news reports, right? Like, what about our social media feeds, okay? And then what about our Facebook pages, let alone, you know, conversations we're having with coworkers and perhaps even debates that are going on in our own families and in our own homes. And 
In light of all of this, I believe that the message today is going to speak to every single one of us because we're going to talk about really what's being talked about in our world today. And, and, and it can leave in the midst of all of these conversations and what we're surrounded by happening in the world today. It can kind of leave even the most confident person sort of figuring out what are we supposed to do here, right? Like, like it can leave some of us questioning how do we actually follow Jesus' teachings in such tricky times that we might live in and, and also on top of our own everyday challenges. And, and like, how do we really love with Christ's love in response to some things that seem pretty unlovable in our world? And, and how do we bring out the best in one another when, let's be real, we're reminded in news reports all the time of how easy it is to bring out the worst in one another? If you've asked any of these questions over the last few months, then friends, tonight is a good day to be at church because God has answers. Here's what I love about God. He is not thrown by the current events or our personal perplexities, and he doesn't leave us in the dark on how to respond. Tonight, we can leave here. Today, we can leave here with answers from God's word, and we can also leave here with a heavenly hope that enables us to actually connect with one another, to care for one another, even in the midst of the interesting times that we live in. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's okay. We're going to have the passage available on the screen for you to follow along. But while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, well, let's, let's bring ourselves up to speed as to what has been happening at this point in God's story of redemption for humanity. At this point, Jesus has sacrificed his one and only life. He's paid the price on the cross for the sins of all humanity and also for our own personal sins. And in doing so, he made possible a life for us that we could never attain on our own, a life free from fear and guilt and shame and sin. And he now gave us a, a new life, a new beginning, one marked by mercy and grace and hope and the assurance of eternal life. And, and if that weren't enough, Jesus, as the Son of God, showed the full extent of his power when he defeated the power of the grave. He rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples and many other believers, before ascending into heaven, he left the gift of his Holy Spirit, the promise of that. And they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, those who believe in Jesus, so that they could be empowered from above and receive guidance every single day of their lives. These world-altering events had taken place. And in the midst of all of this, the news of Jesus began to spread like wildfire. People began to hear the good news of Jesus, and, and, and they began to place their faith in Jesus and begin following the teachings of Jesus. And thus, new church communities began to spark and, and pop up all around, along the Roman Empire, and, and, and its beginning stages of the early church is what we're starting to see here at this point in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and in Ephesians... There was one of these church communities that began to spark up, that began to take root. And this city in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was, was really a, an interesting type city. It was a major booming city. It was a tourist attraction at the time, and it was also a cultural melting pot. It was religiously and racially very diverse. It was also a kind of city that you were only as good as the people you knew, your connections, or your ability to hustle, which kind of reminds me of New York City, where I am from. And on top of that, there was this magnificent temple that was built for the goddess Artemis at the time, and it was worshipped there, but she wasn't the only god being worshipped. Money, fame, power, politics, corruption were also high on the list. In the midst of all of this, people in the city of Ephesus 
from all different kinds of backgrounds and experiences, economic classes and, and ethnicities and, and religious backgrounds were coming to know the power of Jesus Christ and being radically transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. There was a miracle taking place in the city of Ephesus and a church was forming. There was a, a, a movement of miracles happening here, but it didn't come without its challenges. Every movement always gets a little bit messy, doesn't it? And this was no exception. See, we, we think the idea of cultures colliding in the name of Christ sounds exciting and progressive and huge leaps forward and justice and equality, but it was also conflict-provoking and character-developing and most certainly chaos-inducing. And the church found themselves at a crossroads. They found themselves asking the question, what place does diversity play in the church? Like, our differences stacked too high up against us, forcing us to kind of settle into Christian acquaintances and nothing else. Like, should we act pleasant enough in church settings and polite enough in a church service, but then remain distant and divided outside of our worship experiences? Or should we avoid the conversation of our differences altogether, you know, just kind of avoid the elephant in the room? And with heightened tensions at the time existing between those of a Jewish background in church life and, and those of a non-Jewish background referred to as Gentiles at the time, this actually seemed like a pretty good idea to keep the peace. It's in the midst of all of this that Paul pens the passage that we're about to read. Not only did it bring clarity to the church over 2,000 years ago, but I believe is a fresh and relevant revelation for us as the body of Christ today. And so let's begin reading, starting in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. You are members of God's family. I'm gonna say that one more time. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Now there's so many things here, so many bold statements that Paul makes. But the boldest by far would have been this. 
Paul said to this group that we just described, in the climate that we just described, he says to the church, listen, you're not just members of the same group. You're not just Christian acquaintances. You're not just people who happen to sit next to each other in a church service. You're not just friends who casually hang out every now and again. No, you're something far greater than that. You are now family. And friends, the same message applies to you and me as well. We family. Right? Why don't you turn to the person to your left and say, we family. Turn to the person on the other side of you and say, we family too. And if you happen to be sitting next to nobody, I hope you just went with it and just kind of pretended like somebody was there because it can be a really awkward moment, right? We family. That's just how it is and that's how it will forever be. We family. Now, we know that when we say the name family, that means like something different to every single one of us in this room, right? But there's one thing we understand universally about family. Family is not something that we pick and choose. It's just something we're born into, right? And the same is now true for us. We can no longer pick and choose who we want to view as family. Now we're just part of the same family as the family of God. And just like in natural families, the common denominator in families is that they're related by blood. The same is true for us. We are no longer brought together by our different experiences or cultural upbringings or ethnic backgrounds or economic statuses or political views or social views on certain subjects. No, we are brought together and united by the blood that Jesus shed for us on the cross. And just like with natural families, that tie of being blood related can never be broken. The same is true for us. We're family. It is a bond that Jesus has made that cannot be broken. We family, that's just how it is. That's how it's gonna forever be. But this isn't just news that we have to kind of just tolerate. This is actually good news we're celebrating. You know, we don't have to just put up with each other because oh, we're family, we're stuck together. No, we don't have to just succumb to the same dysfunctions that are all too common in natural families today. No, no, no. We can do better together. We can be the thriving, healthy family of God, embracing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, growing and maturing together in our faith. We family. A couple weeks ago, I got to spend an evening with my family, my natural family, my sister and my brother-in-law and my four-year-old nephew, Rocco. And, and I went over and I had dinner. Actually, before dinner, I got to play with my nephew. We built uh, jet planes and skyscrapers out of Legos. It was pretty exciting stuff. And then afterwards, we sat down for dinner. And after dinner, Rocco got ready for bed. And then he kissed my sister goodnight. He kissed me goodnight. Well, let's be real. He more like gave me a raspberry in my face. It was like pretty gross. And you know, he kind of laughed about it as a four-year-old boy would. And then he went to bed. And afterwards, my sister, my brother-in-law, and I, we all got bowls of popcorn because we are a popcorn-loving family. And we sat around in the living room, and for the next hour and a half, we just talked everything. Everything from shop to ethics to theology to family and future. We confided in one another. We encouraged one another. We teased one another. We laughed together. We dreamed together. We agreed to pray for one another. And afterwards, as I left, I was walking home. And uh, in the middle of Court Street in Brooklyn, where I live, as I reflected on the last few hours that I'd spent with my family, I, I began to get tears in my eyes because I became so incredibly thankful for family. You know, the last couple years for me have been some of the greatest years of my life. A true gift from heaven, one that, that I will always treasure. But that gift didn't come without a cost. It's been some of the greatest years of my life, but it's also been some of the hardest years of my life. And here's what I've learned. When things get difficult, 
you don't necessarily need another lecture to listen to. You don't necessarily need another sermon to listen to. You don't necessarily need somebody else to analyze your problems. You don't necessarily need another book to read. You don't necessarily need to work harder or fill up your schedule more or have a better attitude. Maybe you need to do some of those things and maybe you don't. But I guarantee what you always need, family to lean on. And I know that when I say that, for some of us, that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because when we look back on our own history with our own family, our, our, our experience has been a little bit different. Family has actually done more wounding for us than it has healing. I understand. I grew up with a family, yes, with love, but also with dysfunction and addiction and abuse and rejection. I get it. And God has since done an amazing work in my family. And now we are all believers and God has done some extraordinary things and I'll leave that for another time to tell. But I understand. But regardless of what our own personal experience has been with family, I think we all understand that human beings function best when a part of a healthy family. Satan knows this, the enemy of our souls. He knows how powerful family is. He knows that it is far more powerful than any man-made institution. And so the greatest attack that darkness has ever had has been waging war against families. I mean, just look at it. Look, look at stats anywhere from violence to education to disease to depression to sexuality to addiction. And we'll soon discover that trends first began not in Hollywood or in government, but within family. You see, God knows that family is powerful too. In fact, God knows even more because he designed and created family. And he is the one who has called us to be knit together as the family of God, embracing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we begin to live that way, then not only do we model Christ's love to a world that is desperate for answers, but we begin to receive the hope and healing that only can happen in the form of family. God calls us the family of God and not a corporation or a brand or an empire or a dynasty or a monarchy. That's not what he calls the church. He calls the church the family of God. Why? Because these other things, they, they, they speak of power, but nothing of people. They convey ideas of products and agendas, but nothing of love and honor. They might speak of progress, but nothing of personal connection. And our God is a personal God. He's all about connection. He cares about how we treat one another. And so, if we are the family of God, then what sort of Family dynamics have we been thrown into divinely anyway? Well, let's think about family for a second. Family is a lot of things, but here's something we all understand probably about family is, you know, family is a place to be known and a place to belong, right? I mean, growing up as a kid, if I didn't show up to the family dinner, it wasn't like my mom was like, oh, I guess she couldn't make it today. I hope she shows up tomorrow. I'd be ashamed if she just stopped coming all together. No, no, no. My dad would be yelling from across the house, Nicole Marie Guadalupe Reyes, get your butt over here for dinner, right? That's just how it worked in my family. My absence was noticed and my presence was required. Family. You're not just another face in the crowd. And I'm sorry if anyone or anything made you feel that way. No, no, no. Your absence is noticed and your presence is always desired. There's always a seat at the table for you because we family. And family, they tend to know you like nobody else does, right? I mean, my sister knows me like nobody else. I mean, she's known me my entire life. 
She can just look at me and know what's up just by looking at my face. And if she says, what's up, and I say nothing, she'll be like, liar, try again, right? Because she knows me. She's not content with shallow answers and cookie-cutter responses because she's my family. And family, may I suggest that we have more to offer each other than simply shallow answers and cookie-cutter responses. Like, we can be honest with one another. We don't have to act like we have it all together when we don't. I mean, really, who does? We don't have to say everything's fine if it isn't. We can engage in conversations that matter. We can develop trust in one another intentionally through being open with one another and being trustworthy and compassionate towards each other because we're family. And family shows up for each other, don't they? Like, family goes through some stuff together. They're there for each other. When I think about my family, we've been through a lot together. We've weathered some storms together. I remember almost two decades ago when my sister was exchanging wedding vows with Justin, my brother-in-law. I was right there, maid of honor, standing by, cheering her on. And in my mid-20s, when I became an ordained minister, my family was right there in the front row, cheering me on. And a few years ago, when my nephew Rocco, his adoption was finalized in the family courtroom, I was there with my mom and my dad and the rest of our family cheering Kristen and Justin and Rocco on. And a few years before that, when my sister and brother-in-law had to say goodbye abruptly to the foster child that they had loved since birth and were hoping to adopt, I was there with them, crying and grieving with them. And a few years ago when I experienced true heartbreak in my life, my sister was there with me, crying and grieving with me. And last year, when my dad had to tend to and say goodbye to his dying mother in the hospital, I was there with him, crying and grieving with him. Because that's what you do for family. You're there for each other. So family, let's be the kind of family that's there for each other. Let's celebrate the birthdays and the wedding anniversaries and the engagements and the births and the job promotions. And let's show up to the hospital when one of us is battling sickness. And let's show up to one of our houses when we get the phone call from a friend that says, I just lost my job or the relationship just ended. Let's be there for each other. Let's weather a few storms together. Let's grow up together and mature in faith together because we're family. This idea of family, it's not just some pipe dream. It's not just some sort of like Christian romanticized ideal that's easy to preach about but impossible to attain. Family is actually closer than we think. I mean, right now, we're in the middle right here of signups for Connect Group season. How timely is that? An opportunity for us to gather once a week in small groups and to grow in our faith together and encourage each other and pray for each other and really get to know each other. Here's a practical opportunity for us to engage in one another as more than just fellow attendees, but actually embrace each other as the family of God. The opportunity for us to act like family towards each other is actually closer than we think. But if it is available to us, and in most churches today, there is some sort of vehicle for us to actually build each other up in our faith and get to know each other and treat each other as family, then we have to ask ourselves a tough question here tonight. We have to say, really, if there are opportunities for us to treat each other like family and to practice being family, then why don't we feel like family more often? 
Like, what keeps getting in the way? Well, I believe that the Apostle Paul makes a real revealing statement here for us in the passage that we just read. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, we read earlier, I want us to read it one more time, because I think it gives us a glimpse as to what might be getting in the way. He said, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. It was actually quite significant at this time period because Jews and Gentiles alike would have been familiar with what he was speaking of. This wasn't just a metaphoric wall, but it was actually a physical wall. In the Jewish temple enclosure, there was actually a space in which the Gentiles could go, but only up to a certain point. At a certain point, between the outer courts and the inner courts and the temple itself, there was a four and a half foot wide barrier all along the perimeter of the inner courts, basically acting as a dividing wall with inscriptions written all over it as warning signs to the Gentiles saying, if you continue to enter, you enter upon the pain of death. Basically saying to the Gentiles, you can kind of see what we get to have. You can get a glimpse of it, you can get close to it, but you'll never actually be like us. And if you try, if you try to have what we have, then we might harm you, in fact, we might kill you. And here Paul is saying, those days are done. The wall of hostility is now broken down between you. The days of special treatment and preference are over. The days of prejudice and segregation are over. The days of some people feeling included and others feeling excluded are over. The days of seeing each other on opposite sides are over. The days of some people being privileged and some people being mistreated and some people being seen as victims and others seen as oppressors are over. The wall of hostility is now torn between you. And perhaps today, the tension no longer exists between Jew and Gentile within the church, but it doesn't mean there aren't still walls that need to be torn down. I mean, come on. We live in a world with racism and prejudice and injustice and corruption and greed. And it would be naive of us to think that just because we step foot in a church building, we leave all of that behind. It's a sobering thought, but it is a real thought. We can call ourselves Christians and still maintain within our own hearts walls. Walls that divide, walls that protect, walls that keep us comfortable and keep other people at a distance. We all have our walls. They reveal themselves in very subtle ways. Like in one gender's mistrust towards another after a few heartbreaks, or when examining a close-knit friendship circle, it reveals that everybody looks the same and thinks the same and dresses the same and comes from the same background, or in one political party's offense towards another political party, or an older generation feeling like all of the younger people don't respect me nowadays, or a younger person feeling like all the older people in my life seem to be disinterested in what's going on around me, or in, 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 in a couple living in a certain area of town, feeling uncomfortable venturing into another part of town, or somebody of a certain economic status feeling uncomfortable being around somebody of a different level of wealth. Come on, we all have walls. They're uncomfortable to talk about. I can feel the discomfort in the room right now. But if we're not willing to first talk about them and address them and recognize that they exist, then we'll never have any hope of actually tearing them down. Recently, I began reading a book 
called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and it's a true account of, in the U.S., really a modern-day civil rights hero uh, who formed the Equal Justice Initiative. And while reading this book, it, it reveals, it, it's both heartbreaking and captivating because it reveals these moments of true injustice in the world around us. And you get to hear these stories where, really, people are discriminated in horrible ways and mistreated simply because of the color of their skin or because of where they were born. And, and as I'm reading this on the subway in New York, there's different moments where as I'm being exposed to these injustices happening in the world today, I find myself like shaking reading the book and tearing up because, not just because I'm saddened by what I read, but because I'm infuriated that this is happening today. But you see, my first response in being exposed to these things that I didn't know before is not to get mad at all the racists in the world. It's to search and probe for the racists within me. It's to look for the subtle ways in which I've dismissed certain people, or I've over-stereotyped a certain type of person, or I have overlooked all of the warning signs of injustice around me. Because you see, on paper, I could look like a very welcoming person who values equality. I'm a minority myself. I'm dating somebody of another minority. I'm a pastor. I'm a minister. I run a nonprofit. I mean, come on, on paper, I fill all of the boxes that would safely put me in the non-prejudice category. But I have to recognize, in lieu of all of this, that the goal of my life is not just to appear fair and just. That whatever wall exists within me, however short, however feeble, however hidden it might be, it could be one thought, it could be one criticism, it could be one judgment towards another. It is still a threat to my ability to embrace my fellow brothers and sisters as members of the family of God, and therefore it must be demolished. Oh, friends, it's time we begin actively searching our own hearts and tearing down the walls of hostility within so that we could truly embrace each other as family of God. So how do we do this? Practically, how do we do this? Well, like most things that are incredibly difficult, we start by praying. <laughs> we need the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us the places of our heart that need adjusting, to shed light on those places, and then we act. In the lobby after service, here's how we act. We walk across the hall to somebody who looks different than us, who thinks differently than us, who probably has political views that are different than us, or social views, maybe comes from a different generation or a different religious background, and we walk across the room and we say, hi, my name is, fill in the blank, what's yours? I think it's crazy that we go to the same church and I don't even know that much about you. I'd love to get to know you, can we grab coffee sometime? Here, I'll buy your coffee right here. Or something like that, you know? Say hi, hang out, and don't make it weird, right? But this is how we begin to bridge the gap. This is how walls begin to tear down within the church and we truly get to embrace each other as the family of God. And let's not let for one second longer our man-made walls of hostility keep us from our Christ-made bond as the family of God. There's one more attribute of family that we can't deny here while we're having a conversation of what it means to be the family of God. If we're gonna be family the way that Christ intends, Yes, we're going to actively tear down the walls of hostility. We're going to embrace each other and be committed to one another. But we're also going to be an ever-growing and expanding family. Jesus gives this really great picture of what we are meant to be as the family of God in Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there very quickly. It's the last passage we're going to read tonight. But I think it's so revealing as to the glimpse of the ever-growing and expanding family that we were meant to be. In Luke chapter 14... Starting in verse 16, Jesus tells a story. 
He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, oh, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, oh, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so, you know, I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. I love that. There's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So let's look at this story for a second. Jesus tells a story of a master who's throwing this epic party, but everybody he invites comes back declining the invite. And so this master's like, listen, I'm not canceling my epic party just because these fools can't get their priorities straight. And so he makes a whole new invite list with very certain people to invite. Now, the servant must have been thinking the master has lost his mind. I mean, think about this invite list. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Like, and the master didn't say that this was some sort of charity event or this is some sort of PR move. It would seem as if the master wanted them at the party for no other reason than he wanted them at the party. And so the servants who are confused by the master's orders but committed to the master's orders, they set out to do what the master says. Now imagine what this would have been like for them, going to the poor and inviting them to the party. I'm sure that took a lot of convincing. Because I'm sure at first a good majority of the poor were like, uh-uh, I'm not going to a party like that. I don't go to fancy parties. I'm not dressed for the occasion. I don't want to go and stand out and be embarrassed. This is weird. I'm sure a great portion of them were like, mm, this sounds too good to be true. Like, what's the ulterior motive here? You know, because people don't just come up and give things to me like this. It would have taken some serious convincing. It would have spent some time for them to have to, to convince the invited of the sincerity of the invitation and the goodness of the master. And that's just the poor. Let's talk about the lame and crippled for a second. Not only would that have taken convincing, but it would have taken actual manpower. Once they convinced the person to go to the party, they had to physically carry them from one side of the town to the other. It would have been exhausting. It would have taken a lot of work. It wouldn't have been easy. And then how about the blind? I mean, talk about having to earn some trust. Not only did they convince the people to come who were blind, but then they had to extend their hand, and that blind person had to put their hand in the hand of the servant, and the servant had to lean the blind person through the busy streets and the alleyways the whole time trying to reassure them, I promise you there's a party at the end of this. I promise I'm not just misleading you. I promise I'm not going to rob you or mistreat you. I promise it's going to be good. This certainly wouldn't have been a fast-paced venture. You know what I mean? It would have taken some time. To obey the master's orders, to invite people to the party, it was no easy task. It would have been long, it would have been tiring, it would have been exhausting, it would have been hardworking, it would have been uncomfortable, it would have been awkward. And I'm sure for every yes, there were a handful of no's. And yet something happens, ah, oh, something happens within the hearts of the servants. Because when they come back, having invited these guests, they don't do what we'd expect them to do. They don't say to the master, okay, we scrambled together as a team. It was hard work, but we made it happen. We're tired. We're working overtime here now. We're behind schedule. We've got some guests. Let's get this party going. No, no, no. That's not what they say. They report back to the master and say, everything that you requested has been done, but there's still room. Something had to have happened between the journey of inviting the guests, 
leaving the master's house and actually coming back with the guests. Something must have happened in the hearts of the servants as they began to meet with the poor and actually see firsthand the challenges that they were facing. Something must have happened in the hearts of the servants as they were physically carrying a grown man from one side of the town to the other simply so he could get in on the party. Something had to have happened in the heart of the servant as they extended their hand and a blind girl grabbed a hold of it and he led her through town to get to the party. Something happened. And they began understanding the real intention behind the party. And they began seeing people through the eyes of the master. They were no longer doing the orders and fulfilling the commands out of obligation of a servant with the passion of the master. They began to see the hurting of the world the way the master saw them. And they said, I'm not satisfied. I'm not going to leave here. I'm not going to quit until every inch of this party is full with people. There's still room. Jesus has given us a great command. It's called the Great Commission to make his name known, to make his love known to the people around us. But I believe that not only has this given us this great command as the family of God, but I truly believe oh, that in the process of fulfilling the Great Commission, Jesus would want something to happen within our hearts, that we no longer fulfill the Great Commission simply with the obligation of a servant, but we begin to develop the passion of the Master, that we begin to see the hurting of the world, the spiritually hurting, the physically hurting, the emotionally hurting, the financially hurting, and that we would be drawn to them, that we wouldn't be content just to open our doors and hope they show up, that we would go out and find them and seek them in the midst of their pain, that we'd love them, that we'd listen to them, that we'd help them, that we'd do whatever it takes to lead them to hope, to lead them to the party, to lead them to Jesus, in which we get to open our doors and say, welcome home. We've been waiting for you. You're now a part of the family of God. We rolled out the red carpet for you, pulled out all the stops. We're so glad you're here. What would happen, friends, if we began to be the kind of family that's always looking for the next family member, that always sees that there's still room for more? We're not content with our current numbers. We're thankful for what has, God has done, but we know that there's still room at the party. There's still room for more people to encounter the love of God. There's still more opportunity for people to know Jesus and their lives to be transformed. What if we began to see the hurting of the world with the passion of the master? This last December, I was speaking at a young adults conference in Kentucky. And there was a speaker who, at the end of her message, basically said to all of the young adults and the teenagers in the room, and there's a, a few thousand, she said, some of you are really hurting. You're dealing with a lot of pain and you've been hiding it for too long. And now's the time for you to get real about your pain. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a team of people available at the end. Every minister is gonna be available to pray at the end of the service. And if you need some, some prayer and you're hurting, then be honest with your pain and come up and get some prayer. And so I, I, I got up at the front of the stage and I'd done this quite a few times before. This young woman, this beautiful young woman, she like beelined for me and she got up and, 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 and when, I, when I, she came to the front, I said, hi, what's your name? And really soft-spoken, really sweet, she said, Mariah. And, and I put my hand on her shoulder just to pray with her. And I was about to say, what do you need prayer for? But as soon as I touched her shoulder, like something happened. And she began to sob like she lost it. She lost it. She started crying so hard that I had to like hold her up, which was hard to do because she was a lot taller than me, but I found my footing. I was like, okay, we can do this. And, and then she, she actually just, she grabbed a hold of me and she put her head in my shoulder and just continued to sob. 
This woman was dealing with some major pain. I don't know what was going on in her life, but this was not just the tears of an overwhelmed, emotionally wired moment of a teenager. No, no, no. This was the tears of a broken woman. I didn't know what her pain was, but she was going through some things. I wasn't quite sure what to do. I was like, do I say something? Do I pray for her? Do, do, do I try to like direct her in her pain? But somehow I recognized that this was like a holy moment between her and God. And the very best thing I could do was just be silent, be with her, and embrace her. So about 10 minutes into this, 10 minutes worth of her just crying, something happened again. You see, I was wearing the thickest sweater I owned that day. I don't know why, but I was. And up until that moment, the sweater was able to block the tears, able to contain them. But after about 10 minutes of this girl crying, my sweater could no longer absorb the tears. And her tears literally began to drip down my shoulder. I began to actually feel her pain, literally feel her tears. And as soon as I did, something shifted within my heart and I began to cry too. I don't cry that often. I wasn't expecting it. I began to well up in tears and I began to feel something different for this girl I began to see her in her pain and meet her in her pain in that moment I so desperately wanted her to know the embrace of her Heavenly Father I wanted to know that whatever had been done in her past that it wasn't the end of her story I wanted her to know that that God loved her that he was for her I wanted her to have hope for her future I wanted her to know that her best days are ahead I wanted to do whatever I could so that she could encounter the hope and healing of a Savior and eventually I did pray for her and after a few minutes together we hugged again and, and she walked away and I believe that there was incredible healing for her in that moment but it also was a moment of incredible purpose for me it was a reminder that my mission as a member of the family of God is to be uncomfortable but present in the pain of other people to meet them in their pain not to run from it not to ignore it but to actually seek it out to find people who are hurting and to be there for them, to lead them to Jesus, to remind them that they're not alone, to invite them to the party so that they too could encounter the love of Jesus. Friends, what would happen if we became a community right here that was known for meeting people in their pain? What would be happen if we became the kind of people, the kind of family of God that still recognizes today that there's room for more? What would happen if we began to actively go to the people in our world in need and say, I'm here for you. I'm willing to lend a helping hand. I'm willing to help. I'm willing to pray. I'm in it for the long haul. I want you to know Christ's love. What would happen? We all know people in pain. There's people in pain in this room. There's people in pain at our work. There's people in pain in our neighborhood. There's people in pain in our city. There's people in pain around us. I don't know how great it is or how small it is. That's not what the conversation is about. It's about recognizing pain recognizing people who are hurting and doing what we can to make sure they get invited to the party of God's salvation, to experience his love firsthand. There's a lot of what ifs in this message, but I hope that every one of the what ifs leads us to become truly family of God to one another, embracing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be there for each other, that we'd be committed to each other, that we would actively tear down the walls of hostility that would seek to separate us that exist within each of our hearts. And that we would be the kind of people who are always looking for the opportunity to invite somebody else into the family of God. This is the family that Jesus intended us to be. And I wanna quickly pray for us. I wanna pray that by God's grace, we become this family. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you've called us the family of God, that you forge us together by your blood, shed for us on the cross. Thank you that your love for us runs so deep. And thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for placing us in family. For some of us, our history of family has not been great, but you are righting the wrongs of our past. You're giving us a new start in the family of God, teaching us how to love one another, how to be there for each other. I pray for family members right here in this room who are going through tough times, who have difficult decisions to make. May we see the needs of each other in this room and be there for each other. May we celebrate the wins together and may we be there for the losses. May we weather storms together and grow together in our faith. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd show us the walls in our hearts that need to be torn down, that we would truly be able to embrace one another as a family of God, and we wouldn't let judgments or criticisms, prejudice or stereotypes or our own past hurts to keep us from connecting together truly as family of God. And I pray, Jesus, that we would become inviters, that we'd become the kind of servants that have the passion of the master in this place that we would be inviting people this week to join the family of God, that we'd be inviting people to the party, that we'd be meeting people in their pain. Show us the people in our world that we can reach out to with love. May we be an ever-growing and expanding family. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. May we show your love to others because your love has been so great for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you forge us together as the family of God. Show us what it means to live in that way. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you in this place tonight. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, can we give Jesus some praise in this place? Come on, come on. Give him the greatest praise you can in this moment. He's so good. He's with us. He's for us. And I believe as the church, our best days are ahead of us because our Savior is so good. He's for us. I'm going to turn it over to the team. I think we're going to worship God together some more. Thank you so much for having me here this weekend. It's an honor to be with you and to meet new members of the family of God here in Canada. I love being with you. Thank you so much.